Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. Hi, I'm Shirley Leung. I'm a columnist for the Boston Globe. I want to tell you about a new podcast that I'm hosting. It's called Say More. On Say More, I'll be talking to the doers and thinkers behind the biggest ideas of our time. How business works, how cities thrive, politics, technology, culture. I want to bring you inside those conversations. Say More, a new podcast from Boston Globe Opinion. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Winebanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Kim's gone, but she'll be back next week. We'll be looking forward to seeing her. But today we'll be discussing developments in Georgia after Trump turned himself in on Thursday and was arrested and booked like any other defendant in a criminal case, the interesting developments in the Mar-a-Lago case, including possible conflicts of interest with lawyers representing multiple clients, and a new lawsuit filed by the Justice Department. This one is against Elon Musk's SpaceX. And as always, we'll look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Remember, you can go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, totes, and other goodies for the perfect gift. And y'all, speaking of hashtag sisters-in-law, you know, it has been a while since we've all been together. I have sort of been getting the itch to do a couple of live shows again. What do you think? Barb, any place you might want to go? Yeah, let's do Detroit. I think it would be fabulous. You know, I, I'm still trying to put our Detroit Coney dogs up against Jill's Chicago dogs. I think Detroit would be a great place. You know, there is nothing quite like Michigan in the summer and the fall. Mm. So I think we should come here. What about you, Jill? Well, I'm certainly glad that I don't have to fight with you and Kim who would be supporting your choice of <laughs> Detroit. But just across the lake, you have Chicago, a great mm, city in I the do. fall. It is And great city. hot dogs, although mm -hmm. I am really anxious to taste the Coney dogs, I have to mm -hmm. say. But I want you Chicagoans listening to this to lobby for Chicago. <laughs> so let's hear from you all, because it would be fun to have you all here and show you the city it's it's a great town. Let, let me great just be place. clear about what's going on here. We're talking about doing live shows so that we can do a head-to-head -head <laughs> test of hot dogs in Detroit and Chicago. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, well, we, we think we so. Could test our also audience pizza. Because our audience in Port... Well, don't even talk about pizza. Excuse me. Chicago pizza, a thing of itself. But remember, our audience in Portland was so enthusiastic and I think Chicago will be the same. And I know Barb thinks that the Detroit audience would be fabulous. Detroit versus everybody, baby. We do it better. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we can squeeze in both. We'll see. But let's hear from our listeners. Where would you like us to come for our next live show this fall?
We had a lot of developments in Fulton County, Georgia, in the RICO case against Donald Trump during this past week. We saw Donald Trump turn himself in, and uh, for the first time in four criminal cases, this time he was actually required to get his mugshot taken. I- I'm curious to hear what you each think about that. Jill, what, were you, what was your reaction to the mugshot, and how do you feel about mugshots generally? I feel mixed emotions about the whole events of this week in Georgia. Um, It reminds me of what might have been if we had indicted Richard Nixon. It reminds me of how sad I am that a president of the United States needs to be or could possibly have facts that would require him to be indicted. Um, I think that mugshots, because they are the standard procedure for criminal defendants, was required of all the defendants. And as of the moment we're speaking, all 19 have turned themselves in. One is actually still in jail because he cannot afford the bond, um, although it seems like there is someone putting up the money now. And it, it's, I guess my overwhelming feeling is that I'm really sad that this has happened in our country, but really glad that we have a justice system that allows us to bring this case in a civilized way and to have the facts, particularly in Georgia, broadcast to the American viewers so that they can form their own opinion of the evidence in the case and form their own conclusions about Donald Trump and the others, guilt or innocence. What about you, Joyce? That Those are certainly important thoughts. What do you think? You know, I, I agree with Jill. I think that this was a very profound moment. It was Not a happy one. It was rewarding in the sense that it is really reassuring to know that we still have a functioning criminal justice system in this country after four years uh, when Trump pretty much tried to rend it asunder. I think in hindsight, you know, looking back from a ways that this moment will be seen as a turning point for the country. But for right now, living through the moment, there's a lot of complexity. There are a lot of legal proceedings ahead. There is not a lot of certainty. And that means this is a moment where there is an opportunity for Trump to try and keep people confused and misinformed. And so really my big takeaway from the week is that this is a moment where all of us have to live up to our obligations as citizens. It's a tough time in this country. There are people, there are families where folks have profound disagreement about what's going on. I think that we have to be patient and engaged and to be willing to talk about the truth. And mostly, I am so happy um, that Georgia has cameras in the courts. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, um, mugshots and perp walks have never been my favorite thing. Uh, When I was serving as U.S. Attorney, we we stopped the practice of giving mugshots out to the press because we thought there was a risk of poisoning the jury pool and affecting due process. Same with those perp walks. You know, we um, prohibited uh, any of our law enforcement partners from doing them. Every once in a while, some you know state task force would would try to do it, and we would distance ourselves from that. I, I think it's a bad look. You know, it's sort of like dunking on your opponent or spiking the football. You haven't done anything yet. You know, you've charged somebody, but they're presumed innocent. And so I don't love the idea of, of um, releasing mugshots. On the other hand, I do think that Donald Trump should be subjected to one because that's the process in every case. And, you know, in these other three cases, he didn't have to submit to a mugshot. He was given special accommodations. And I think to the extent we want to make it clear that no one is above the law then that means everything. And so if it is part of the routine booking process in Georgia, even if everybody does know what he looks like, then I think he should be subjected to it as well. So 
I had some mixed thoughts about that, but I agree with both of you that this is really a moment of reckoning. It's a moment of test of our criminal justice system. You know, Donald Trump is trying to claim, and many people are believing it, that this is all about interfering with the next election. One thing I hear is, well, they wouldn't have indicted him if he weren't running for president, uh, as if they just like sort of decided last week, like, let's indict him. Um, you know, as you both know, putting together a criminal case like this of this complexity, you know, all three of these new charges, the, the two by the special counsel, one by George, it just takes a really long time. I'm sure they would have loved to have charged these cases two years ago or one year ago. And it's only now that we're, we're seeing these. And so um, I hope that once the members of the public see the evidence, they will believe, you know, regardless of the verdict, guilty or not guilty, that these are serious prosecutions with um, real evidence and, and not simply some effort to throw sand in the gears of the election. Um, I wanted to ask you about one of the co-defendants, Kenneth Cheesebro. And, and by the way, have we landed on whether it's Cheesebro or Chessbro? I'm told by someone who knows him that it's Chesbro. Yeah. So um, Mr. Chesbro, I will say, has demanded a speedy trial. And so interesting, you know, he's one of the lawyers charged with orchestrating the fake elector scheme. And the judge has actually set a trial date of October 23rd for him. Um, Jill, let me ask you, when everyone else is seeking delay at trial, why on earth would he want a speedy trial? Well, that's such a good question because normally a defendant does want delay. I think there are a couple of possibilities. One is that he was calling uh, or thought he was calling Fannie Willis's bluff and that she couldn't be ready within the timeline set by the Georgia statute. And the Georgia statute is really harsh because it basically, in this case as applied, meant that the trial has to start by November 3rd. And that's not many weeks away. And that includes having had jury selection, which I think may take longer than from October 23rd to November 3rd. I'm really worried about how they're going to get through jury selection. And it's, remember, it's not just the 12 jurors. They're going to need a lot of alternates. Yes. So it, it's it's concerning to me. But I think he thought she would say, oh, can't do it. Yeah, and right. Catch that your he'd be footed. home free because if you miss that deadline, the case is dismissed. She said, fine, I can try all 19 of you on that date. Now, of course, the others are all trying to get delays, and they get a big advantage because they get a preview. If they get delays and he goes to trial, they get a preview of the evidence and can then better prepare for how it comes in. And they also can try to trick witnesses into inconsistent statements, which is one of the banes that we all face of, you know, they testified in one place and then they testified in another, and now they testify in court, and there's a slight difference in their version and their credibility gets hurt on cross-examination. So I think he did it for those reasons. Um, and he may be, end up being really sorry because he also has to be ready by that date. Mm -hmm. Right. Joyce, do you think that this order will affect the trial dates of the others? You know, as, as Jill has said, you know, Fannie Willis says, all right, then game on. I'll do all 19. Uh, how do you think that's going to shake out? Yeah, I mean... You know, this is, it's sort of crazy anytime you've got 19 defendants in a case. Some defendants may get tried with him. You could have two. You could even have more than, you know, two trials. I'm just not sure that the order matters as much here as it might in other cases because of that overwhelming RICO charge, right? I mean, she will have to prove the RICO charge in every case she tries because all of the defendants are named in it. 
And in a way, maybe this is what she wants. You know, Fonnie Willis had time to game everything out here and figure out what was going to happen. It's not like she was unfamiliar with Georgia's Speedy Trial Act statute. Um, There's been a lot of talk about, you know, the cheeses strategy here. Not very much about hers. This lets her get into court early. Um, It gives her a chance to lay out her evidence, not just against this defendant and others who may be tried with him, but also against the former president, who is almost certain to vehemently refuse to be tried on this kind of a timeline. Once her evidence is laid out, it may help her pick up cooperating witnesses that she has not yet secured. And it can also really help to move public attitudes. I mean, we know this. We saw this happen with the January 6 hearings. Remember the world before them. Nobody thought Trump was really going to be held accountable. Nobody was really sure what the entire scope of his conduct was. Suddenly, the January 6th committee puts that evidence on and people begin to understand the complexity and the overwhelming nature of the schemes that Trump inspired to try to hold on to the presidency. I think an early trial in Georgia might have that same sort of an impact, too. And Fonnie Willis is all about impact. I mean, let's be clear. She'll take her convictions where she can get them, even if her preference would be to put 19 defendants in the courtroom and have it all over at once. Let me add something to that, Joyce, because I think, first of all, judicial um, administration convenience would say one trial. You don't want the witnesses to have to testify three times, two times, five times, however many trials it gets broken down into. You don't want prosecutors to have to present the same evidence. And you're right, because of the RICO, you will have all the evidence in all of the cases. There's no limitation once you have a co-defendant or a co-conspirator, his or her evidence is admissible against you. So it's, it's bad from that point of view. It's great from the public's point of view, because if this trial starts on October 23rd, it will be completed and there will be a verdict long before Super Tuesday, long before Maybe. November. And <laughs> I think we're... They tried I think long Rico I'm, cases in Georgia, Yeah, right? I don't think this particular... If it was only him, it's not going to be that long. But it could be because if you present all the evidence, it would take everything you have. Um, but it certainly will be a revelation to voters to see the evidence presented in a courtroom. And this is a courtroom where there are cameras. So they will really get to see the evidence for themselves. So from my point of view, it would be terrific to start this trial on October 23rd. Yeah, I think legally, um, having Chesbro go first might be beneficial to the other defendants because they get that preview. And as you said, Jill, you've got those transcripts from the prior testimony and a skilled defense lawyer can make a really tiny change. You know, I said it happened at three o'clock one time. Then I said it happened at four o'clock another time, even though it's not at all relevant to the substance of the testimony, you know, with enough of those, you can make somebody look like they don't know what they're talking about. Um, So I think for those reasons, having one of the defendants go first can be a real benefit to Trump and other defendants to just get that preview and develop their strategy. But I think politically, it's very bad for Donald Trump because, as you say, um, you know, a prosecutor doesn't bring a case unless they think there is a strong likelihood of conviction. And so that tells me that Fonnie Willis thinks she's got the goods. And so I think once people start hearing about these schemes, especially like, you know, the schemes to 
threaten um, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss and, and try to coerce them into making false confessions about voter fraud, I mean, that's going to blow people away. And I, I think there's a lot of people who just don't know what's in there. And when we see that on television, there's going to be a lot of coverage of that. Uh, I think politically, it could be very perilous. But Barb, let's underline that because I think something that our listeners can do that's a real public service right now, I talk to a lot of people, including lawyers, who have like jobs and lives that they're living, and they can barely keep track of the four different cases, let alone Mm -hmm. the details of the facts. I think you're dead on the money. When they start hearing about the, the scheme involving um, what what was done to Ruby Moss, or or rather to Ruby Freeman and to her daughter Shea Moss, and also this scheme in Coffee County, where the day after yep. January sixth, yep. yeah. Sidney Powell, the Kraken lawyer, is flying in to go in and break into the voting machines. I think that this may really shock the conscience. Yeah, I, I I think that's right, and and you know the Coffee County stuff I think has not been well reported because it did wasn't covered in the January six hearings, and I think same thing there, you know, in, intruding into uh, voting machines. So I think you're absolutely right. Well, let me just um, turn um, to the week ahead. Monday we've got a pretty interesting uh, motion scheduled. This is the motion by Mark Meadows, and I guess Jeff Clark now has joined this. Um, Meadows is, of course, Trump's former chief of staff. Jeff Clark is the former DOJ official who wanted to become the acting attorney general. Um, And their motion is to remove the case to federal court. Let me just ask you guys first, what's removal and what's your assessment of that issue? Joyce, I'll start with you on on what, uh, just to explain what removal is and whether you think it's likely that they'll be successful. Yeah, so just to date stamp, we should say that we're taping Friday afternoon around 4.30 Eastern. And as of this moment, Mark Meadows and Jeff Clark have both asked to remove their cases, as have three of the Georgia State folks also claimed that they have a right to removal. I suspect by the time our listeners hear this, and certainly by Monday morning, there may be more. The big mystery is whether or not Donald Trump will try to remove the case. Federal officials, federal officials have the opportunity to remove a case when they're indicted in state court in the federal court. It's sort of an obscure procedure. It's mostly used for federal agents who are accused of crimes in the course of conducting their regularly authorized work. So, um, That's the point of the whole law. You only get the benefit of removal if you're a federal official engaged in your official duties and some state comes along and wants to charge you with criminal conduct based on the performance of your official duties. That's what the judge here will have to decide. Were these defendants engaged in official federal duties? And the answer seems like a very obvious no, but there's a little bit of a twist. The law is super defendant-friendly. There's a very low bar for removal. A defendant doesn't have to prove that their defense is a winner, just that it's colorable. But, you know, a low bar doesn't mean that there's no bar. I think the judge is still entitled to determine whether the defendants were engaged in their official duties, and I think that's where this one is going to blow up. Because Meadows and Clark were not doing the work of the people or the work of the presidency. They were doing the work of the campaign. They were working for candidate Trump, not President Trump, when they acted out in Georgia. Um, We will get our first glimpse of how the judge views these issues on Monday at the hearing. I think there are some good arguments that the defendants can make. I hope the judge won't be receptive. I think it's clear that the judge won't be. I I think it's a much stronger argument. 
case in terms of not being within their federal duties. It is not part of your federal duty to overturn an election. The president does not have any role in the count or the election. I think that breaking into Coffee County's computers cannot be deemed to be part of anybody's federal duties. I don't think the phone call to Raffsenberger could be considered to be. I just think all of the elements of this are so clearly outside. And I think that the response to this included things like, hey, you said it was to do something that the Hatch Act would bar you from doing. It would be illegal under the yeah, Hatch Act. Yeah, that was a great point. I, I, don't you yeah. think? Um, so I, I feel like the judge is going to say no and that there is no colorable federal defense to this. There just isn't. So I think it will be denied and the case will stay in Georgia. Yeah, I think one thing that's important to note for, for our listeners is that, you know, the president has a lot of power a lot, to do a lot of different things, but he has zero role in the administration of state elections. So the idea that he's just calling to check in and help out, like, no, that is not the job of the president. He was doing that as a candidate, not in any way in his job as So but can I just say, I agree with everything that you're saying. And I think, you know, the fact that they offered to use campaign money to help out in Georgia is a real kicker here. It's something that Fonnie Willis can put on at trial. The problem that I see in this early hearing is that there is a lot of case law that says that the judge doesn't really look at the substance, at the merit of the argument that the defendants would make. Really, it's just about determining their status. So I will say that I'm a little bit more concerned than you all are about the sort of hearing that particularly Meadows and Clark might receive in court. I'm hoping that the judge will adopt this sort of an analysis, that he'll say, yes, I understand how the law here works, and I see the case law, but it would, in essence, be perpetrating a fraud on the court if we were all to pretend that this was legitimate federal public official work that these guys were engaged in. I know I'm not supposed to look too deeply at the substance of their arguments, but I'm going to here because not to do so would be a waste of judicial resources. It wouldn't serve the interests of judgment. Whatever sort of analysis he adopts, I hope he'll get there. Yeah. Jill, let me just ask you one other interesting side note. Um, late in the week, Mark Meadows and Jeff Clark filed a motion with the federal judge to stay the <laughs> state court proceedings and say, um, issue an order judge that says we don't have to show up to turn ourselves in the way um, DA Willis told us we had to by Friday, August 25th. And the judge rejected that. What was your, your take on that? Well, w what they were saying specifically was at least wait until after Monday when the removal yeah. is yeah. decided, because then I don't have to turn myself into mm -hmm. the Georgia court because it's going to be, you know, federal mm -hmm. trial. Um, and the judge said, no, Georgia rules unless and until it's overturned. Sorry, you have to turn yourself in. And to their credit, they both did. They did not violate the law. So they have both been arrested, mugshot, fingerprinted. They've done the whole thing. I thought there were two interesting points about that. One is Jeff Clark's motion was as lawless on this as was his theory about <laughs> overturning the election. He <laughs> This is a criminal case. He cites the civil case to say that there's the, the state court the proceeding should be stopped while the court, federal court considers the removal. The federal criminal removal statute says in plain language yes. that the state court proceeding should not stop, that it should continue until the case is removed to federal court. So 
you know, just, he just didn't even, he just ignored that part of the law. So shame on him. Um, the other thing though, he's I beyond think shame at the though, time right? that Fani- he's beyond shame. Let's just be honest. Jeff Clark, who yeah, wanted yes. to be attorney yeah, general. Yes. yes. Right. And, and, and is that part of his job as a federal official? He was the head of boss? the environment and natural so. resources division. At yes. best, he was yes, acting in the civil division. He had no role to play in Georgia's election, and I hope the court will call him out and chastise him for pretending anything to the contrary. I, I guess he gets to me as a former DOJ employee. Yeah, I, same. I cannot contemplate yeah. the, the lack of judgment yeah. and the irresponsible attitude he took towards democracy. Yeah. The, the, the other point I want to make, though, is it really just shows how brilliant it was of Fonnie Willis back on the day she indicted this case two weeks ago. At the time, she said, I have secured arrest warrants, but I'm not going to arrest you right now. I'm going to give you the courtesy of turning yourselves in, but you have to do so by noon on Friday, August 25th. That's the deadline. Don't ask again, right? And and then she held firm to that, which I thought was a very good way of doing it. It was a very shrewd way of doing it. I don't know about you guys, but very often in a white collar case, we would file an indictment. And then the practice was we pick up the phone and call the defense lawyer and say, hey, your client's been indicted. I, you know, I know you know this was heading in this direction. You know, Can you bring him in sometime in the next few days? And you would sort of rely on the good faith that they'd say yes. And within the next you know, one, two, three days, they'd bring their client in. But she's watched enough of all of the shenanigans that Donald Trump engages in. And so I thought this was a really brilliant move from the start to sort of set that outer limit at a reasonable time, two weeks, but to have that lever in hand of the arrest warrant. So if they fail to show up, bam, like here's, look, go get them. I thought that was a really shrewd move on her part. And she was able to, uh, I think, um, show how important it was to have that when Clark and Meadows started trying to maneuver. Well, to the point of our conversation about how fast moving all of this has been, while we've been having this conversation, Sidney Powell, the Kraken lawyer, has been busy at work filing her own motion for a speedy trial. So it looks like it'll now be <laughs> Sidney Powell um, alongside uh, Kenneth Chesbro. And there will be a, a little bit more for Fonnie Willis to chew on heading into this first trial. There was a dramatic revelation this week in Special Counsel Smith's Florida indictment of Trump for the Mar-a-Lago documents case, and it explained why there is a superseding indictment adding obstruction charges for the attempt to destroy surveillance video. Barb, what did we learn this week? Well, in the context of a hearing on a motion for conflict of interest, we found out about the changing testimony of the IT manager who is discussed in that Mar-a-Lago indictment. Uh, there is a witness. He's described as the IT manager. And at one time, he was giving one version of the story. And his lawyer at the time was a man named Stanley Woodward, who also represents uh, Walt Nauta in the case. And it turns out that once this IT manager got a new lawyer, he changed his story. He had a public defender appointed, and suddenly he was sharing information that was incriminating against the defendants, including Carlos de Oliveira, who ultimately got added to the indictment. So what appears to have happened is that he changed his testimony once he fired Stanley Woodward 
and got a new lawyer, the public defender, who was not funded by Donald Trump, funded by the public. And I think that really caused some eyebrows to raise. So it was a dramatic revelation um, leading again to this obstruction charges. So Joyce, how does it come about that we have what is known as a Garcia hearing about conflicts between a lawyer and multiple clients? Yeah, so Garcia hearings are designed to protect a defendant's right to counsel, but it's sort of an interesting scenario. Under Rule 44 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, this is our Law School 101 for today, courts, judges are supposed to take appropriate measures to protect each defendant's right to counsel in cases where a lawyer represents more than one defendant or some witnesses and there's the potential for conflict. And the interesting thing about this, the question involved in a Garcia hearing is what's the judge supposed to do when the judge thinks that there's a conflict, but the defendant isn't really worried about it. In that situation, the judge holds a Garcia hearing to put everything on the record, and that serves two purposes. It makes sure that this defendant who thinks that she doesn't care about her lawyer's conflict understands what's involved and understands how she might be prejudiced. And also by putting everything on the record and asking the defendant to waive the conflict on the record, the judge is making sure that the defendant can't claim down the road after a conviction oh my goodness, that their lawyer somehow screwed them over, and so the conviction needs to be reversed. Um, so here's how the Garcia court put it. Sometimes it's helpful to read the actual opinion, and they frame the situation, I think, in, in a way that makes it comprehensible. The Fifth Circuit wrote, the central question concerns a criminal defendant's right to retain counsel of his own choice even though the trial court considers such counsel to be disqualified because of a conflict of interest. The distinctive aspect of this case is that the defendants do not seek to waive the right to counsel. Rather, they seek to waive the Sixth Amendment guarantees, which might otherwise protect them in circumstances adjudged by the district court to disqualify counsel. So that's a little bit of legal wisdom that we can all understand. This is about the court satisfying itself that the defendants are knowingly waiving a conflict. And so what's happened here is that the government, the special counsel's office, has told the judge, hey, there's a conflict that you should be worried about. You're in Florida, which actually uses Fifth Circuit rules. The Eleventh Circuit and the Fifth Circuit used to be one and the same. Garcia is still good law in the Eleventh Circuit. So they're saying, judge, you should hold a Garcia hearing. It's very clearly merited under the law in this circuit. And I think it would be air if the judge declined to hold one. Absolutely. And you, although you do wonder, why doesn't the lawyer have to inform the client that he's representing people with conflicting views? Well, Stan Woodward, one of the lawyers, said that he did tell his clients. And so this is that that classic situation, right? How clear was the lawyer? I think to your point, Jill, right? You know, what exactly did the lawyer say other than, hey, I might have a conflict exactly. that you don't need to worry about it? Right, exactly. And that's why the judge is a better and more impartial arbiter of that fact. And so, Barb, in this case, let's talk about what Woodward's conflict was, or just even in general, what kinds of conflicts uh, arise between a lawyer and multiple defendants in the same case, or a, 
a witness and a defendant where they might have differing testimony. Yeah, well, sometimes, you know, one wants to tell one story and one wants to tell another. And so we know that Walt Nauta testified to the FBI, or I guess was interviewed by the FBI and said, I don't know anything about any documents. I don't know what you're talking about. And it sounds like perhaps that was what Mr. Tavera said when he was initially interviewed. Um, But, you know, at some point, if he realizes that's not the truth, I want to tell the truth, um, then the lawyer who is, you know, sort of representing both um, has a conflict to the extent that the the witnesses, the clients are telling different versions of the facts. So I don't think you can represent somebody if they're going to go to the same trial and one's going to say, I did move the documents and the other's going to say, no, you didn't move the documents. You didn't know anything about it. They have uh, adverse um, positions in the case. And I think for that reason, um, it's, it's an apparent conflict. Now, maybe at the initial stages when they were both telling the same story, then it was not apparent to Mr. Woodward that they were lying and that he he, he believed what they were saying as well. Um, but it's you know it's sort of like the classic case to me is sometimes when you have people who are very close who are represented by the same lawyer. Maybe it's a husband and wife who are defendants or business associates, and they hire one lawyer and they say the lawyer is going to represent both of us. You know we've we've got this, and um, it really does take a judge to step in and say to both of those clients look, you may have adverse positions at trial. It is my obligation to advise you that you should have a client who is looking out solely for your best interest and isn't, you know, sort of winking and nodding uh, to help you as what's best for you as a group. What's best for you individually is what I care about as a judge. And so sometimes you need to make sure the judge is stepping in there uh, to ensure that the, the client is making um, you know, a knowing, intelligent, and voluntary waiver of their right to have their own lawyer. That's a great explanation. And sort of related to this, Joyce, I want to ask you about when you have a situation where the lawyer is not being paid by the client, but is being paid for by the client's employer or by the bigger code, you know, the defendant who's really the big person in the case, as happened here, where either Trump's PAC was paying for um, the lawyer who is representing people who might otherwise testify against him. What are the ethics of that? Yeah, you know, we've touched on this before, and Barb gave such a good explanation. Her experience and practice was was very much like mine was. You do see this happen. We would see it happen frequently in the business context. We did a large um, case involving a company called HealthSouth, And there were issues about um, whether certain lawyers could represent multiple defendants and and defendants who had worked for the company. You also see it in your sort of garden variety drug trafficking cases where you might have mules who are driving drugs across the border or transporting drugs once they hit the United States and the organization wants to pay for their lawyers. Um, The bottom line is a third party can pay for a lawyer. However, the lawyer is obligated to represent the client, not the person who's paying the bills. But that's more art than science in practice. That's one of the reasons that the Garcia mechanism exists in the first place, so that courts can be satisfied that lawyers really are doing their jobs and representing their client and not some other interest. You know, it's so interesting as we talk about these ethical issues involving lawyers, because as a result of Watergate, there were so many lawyers involved as actors in the crime, not as, you know, 
acting as lawyers, but who actually were planning the break-in and paying for the break-in and paying the hush money and Damn lawyers. transmitting the hush money. They're, hmm? Damn lawyers. Yeah, they were. And a lot of them went to jail. The attorney general, you know, it wasn't just, you know, casual bystanders. Um, so as a result of that, the ABA actually changed the ethical rules and made it clearer as to who represents who and what they can do. And I just think it's so interesting that we're once again back in a situation where a lot of the defendants in this case are lawyers. And it's really a shame that no one has learned the lesson. The bar exam didn't used to have an ethics part. When I took the bar exam, there was no ethics part. And that was added as a result oh, of Watergate. Wow. I did not really? know that. I did not know that. Yes. Huh. Yeah. Well, for some of these lawyers, it didn't take. <laughs> yeah, apparently not. <laughs> so hopefully, maybe it'll be for a few years now. Um, I mean, John Dean and his friend uh, Jim Robinall teach an ethics course based on what the lessons of Watergate are and who the lawyer's responsibility is to in the you know representing the client and who they have to represent things we've been talking about right now so hopefully you aspiring lawyers and you practicing lawyers pay attention to your ethical obligations So I know it's risky to do this in a week like the one that we have lived through, but I thought that we would take up one topic this week that had nothing to do with Donald Trump. How do y'all feel about that? Oh, thank God. <laughs> Yay from me. <laughs> yeah, I need to talk about something So, um, you know, yeah, we need it all, right? And this is an interesting one because we learned yesterday that our, our friends at DOJ's Civil Rights Division have been very busy. The Civil Rights Division filed a lawsuit against Elon Musk's company, SpaceX. They alleged discriminatory hiring practices against refugees and what they call asylees, people who have sought asylum in this country. It's utterly fascinating, and it seemingly came from out of left field. So, Jill, you're the, the one among us who has experience working inside of a business and understands um, sometimes DOJ does file lawsuits against businesses and businesses and, and their lawyers have to react. Can you help us understand the allegations in this lawsuit, what it's about and, and how SpaceX will react to receiving it? It is a fascinating case and particularly in a week where if you read the New York Times, you found that SpaceX is actually really powerful in terms of the war in Ukraine and where they have cut off communications while people are going to die in the front lines because of it. So it made it even more interesting to read about this. And really what this one comes down to is a simple discrimination case that for whatever its reasons, the CEO, Elon Musk, and the corporation, uh, the HR departments, decided that they would not hire anybody who was either uh, an asylee or a refugee. And by the way, this also does combine my immigration experience because I did practice immigration law at Jenner and Block. Um, and so I know that under the Immigration Act, refugees and asylees are treated as U.S. citizens. The company was claiming 
that because the, their technology was such, they would be under the Export Control Act, and therefore they had to hire only U.S. citizens. But in fact, that act does not bar anybody who isn't a U.S. citizen, especially because it's made very clear that asylees and refugees are to be treated equal to U.S. citizens. So what this lawsuit is all about is saying that you discriminated against a class of people who are protected, that is asylees and refugees, and you have to stop doing that, and you're going to have to pay back pay to the people who were rejected. Uh, of course, there are many people who didn't apply because part of their conduct was making it clear that they shouldn't apply. But some people, even despite that, applied and were rejected. So there was a, sort of at every stage, recruitment, application, hiring, interviewing, all of that was part of the conspiracy to prevent these people from getting jobs, even though they had the exact qualifications. And there's even evidence in the complaint that says, uh, you know, there's a notation in the record, has some really great background for this job, but we're going to just not hire him because of his not being a U.S. citizen. So they use that blatant excuse not hire because U.S. not a mm. U.S. citizen. So, um, Barb, the lawsuit makes accusations about Musk directly. It's not long. We can attach the complaint to the show notes. We've all had a chance to look at it. It alleges that some of the discriminatory hiring practices took place, as Jill was referring to, in online postings and in statements made by SpaceX's CEO, that would be Musk, um, that discouraged folks from even applying. Um, is that unusual? And can the company be held accountable for what he says in his tweets or, or X's or whatever we're supposed to call him now? Yes. Um, you know, he could be liable individually and the company could be as well. You know, the test usually is whether this person is um, part of the control group for the corporation. You know, so if you have somebody who is um, at a lower level in an organization, you can't really say they speak for the organization when they say something. But someone who's at the highest level, like like Elon Musk, he's the CEO, you can't get any higher than that. Um, he is in that group. But then there's a second test, which is whether the alleged conduct was committed for the purpose of advancing the interests of the company. So, you know, just because Elon Musk does something that's illegal, completely unrelated to the company, wouldn't make the company liable for him. Uh, but in this case, I think you could allege that he did this and he did it on behalf of the company. So, uh, so yes, he can be. And in fact, you may recall that he got caught up in an SEC lawsuit because of things he tweeted uh, before about uh, about his companies. And so um, it's certainly fair game. I mean, a tweet or, you know, an X, whatever we call them, a social media post is a public statement. And so whether it comes in a press release or some other, uh, you know, an annual report or a tweet, it is still a public statement. So yes, um, you know, the fa we have to wait for the facts to be seen and uh, a fact finder to make a determination. But yes, actually, all those statements are, are, are actually on his own favorite petard, one might say. Um, <laughs> so Jill, what kind of remedy does DOJ seek in a case like this? It's a civil case. Nobody's going to jail. What, what are they looking for? Interesting in this case, the first thing they'll ask for is a cease and desist order to make them stop this illegal practice and never do it again. They also, because there are specific people who have applied and were rejected despite being qualified, they will ask that they be hired going forward 
and that they get back pay from the date of their application. They will ask that there be fair consideration given going forward to all people who are in this protected class. And uh, as I said, the back pay for the people who didn't get hired. Um, I don't think they can do anything about the people who would have been hired and would have applied if they hadn't been discouraged by the statements and postings that said, no one but a US citizen can apply because it'd be too hard to prove that they would have applied if they hadn't known it. And by the way, this case is not just about high-level engineers. This is a case that involves everything from cooks and welders, laborers, to the engineers. So it is a pretty broad category and may involve a lot of people and a lot of damages. You know, all that said, Barb, civil cases move slowly, right? There's no Speedy Trial Act for anybody to invoke here. So realistically, when DOJ, when the Civil Rights Division brings cases like this, what what are we looking at and how do we make progress on these issues? Yeah, you're right about that. You know, I can remember I started my career in, in civil practice. I know you did too. And Jill's had some civil practice and I enjoyed it. But I can remember when I was a prosecutor going into court, like to wait for, you know, I might have a little plea hearing or a sentencing hearing or something like that. And there would be these civil lawyers in the courtroom with their boxes and boxes of documents. And I would just think, oh, that it looks so dreadful. Um, and part of it is these cases are enormous and they go on for a really long time. As you said, there is no Speedy Trial Act. And so they, you know, depose each other. They depose witnesses. They exchange documents. They uh, send interrogatories where they ask questions. Um, it goes on and on. And you know, then they have motion practice and uh, seek summary judgment. So it can go on a very long time. I, you know, more, more often it's a matter of years than a matter of, of months. I can remember a case I worked on with a partner and he said um, he marked by his daughter's age the length of time he'd been working on a particular case and his daughter was now nine. And I remember thinking, oh, no, how long is this going to last? You know, I think that that's such an important point for people to understand. And the Justice Department changes hands with administrations and sometimes priorities shift. Um, and that can complicate cases in strange ways, although more often than not, and especially when it's a civil rights matter, these cases continue regardless of who's running the administration. But I very much admire the work that the Civil Rights Division does, because I think just by doing the work, committing to bring this case, knowing that the people that brought the case may not see it out, the Assistant Attorney General, Christian Clark, who authorized this case and who has worked on it, I suspect very endlessly, will not be here to see the end of it because she will have moved on. I really admire these people who stand up and do the right thing in the civil context and seek to protect the rights of vulnerable people, of marginalized people. These cases are really important. Yeah, I'll agree with that, Joyce. It's um, it, it, and They've done quite a breadth of civil rights cases between voting cases and police brutality cases, the Civil Rights Division has been very active. And when you think about the Civil Rights Division in the prior administration, when it was quite dormant, <laughs> uh, they really have had a remarkable record of achievement here. So I'm sorry, but quite dormant is the most understated, polite way <laughs> of characterizing that. I adore you, Barb, especially because you can say things like that. <laughs>
So now we're at the part of the show where we get to answer your questions. You all challenge us every week. We love your questions. We read them. Unfortunately, we can only pick a few of them, but we so appreciate them because they sometimes inform the topics that we take up the following week. And of course, we'll try to answer the ones we don't get to today on social media throughout the week. If you have a question for us, please email it to us at sistersinlawpoliticon.com or put it on threads or on Twitter using the hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your questions, though, do do keep in mind that we will try to answer the ones that we can get to on social media. Um, That said, I think we've picked out three good ones for this week. So, Jill, first question is for you, and it comes from one of our far-flung listeners. The question is from Donna in Sydney, Australia, and the question is this. If Trump is convicted in more than one jurisdiction, where does he get incarcerated? I love the question, but more, I love that you're from Australia because as everybody knows, the dog who interrupted us today is named Brisby. His real name is Brisbane because his father was the grand champion of Australia. And so I'm going to answer Donna's question. Actually, in this case, there are four, uh, only three jurisdictions really because two are federal and the federal ones will coordinate and they can send a prisoner to somewhere that is convenient for the prisoner. They don't always have to keep you in the jurisdiction where you were convicted. So that's how that one would be determined. Then as to whether when you're convicted in the state of New York and in the state of Georgia, as well as in a federal penitentiary, then there is some negotiating about who gets priority about where they would be. And a lot of times people will Uh, work very hard to get into a federal prison for reasons that we mentioned in our discussion about Georgia today. The Georgia courts, particularly the Fulton County Court, uh, I'm sorry, jail, I didn't mean court, I meant the jail, um, is under investigation for deaths that have occurred there, including, I believe, there was a death this week. So it's unlikely that he'll get jail time in the New York case, I would think. So it's really only whether he, if convicted, and we do presume that he's innocent until convicted, um, would ever have to serve time in Georgia. And that would depend on the length of time he serves in a federal prison if he is convicted, again, presuming him to be innocent until proven guilty. So it's an interesting answer, Jill, and I picked out a related question that goes really well with yours. This one is from Philip in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and he asked, with Donald Trump facing four indictments, including 91 felony charges, could a three strikes law apply in any or all of his trials? If so, does it matter which trial goes last? And this, too, is an interesting question. Some state jurisdictions have three strikes laws where third strike means that you're in prison for the rest of your life. Um, So, Philip, I may burst your bubble a little bit here. First off, I am not a fan of these three strikes laws. I think all too often they're used in cases involving people who, you know, have committed three shoplifting or three bad check cashing crimes and the punishment becomes disproportionate. But here's what I like about your question. If Donald Trump is convicted, and as Jill says, it's important that we all remember we live in a rule of law country and he is presumed innocent until proven guilty. But for any defendant who's convicted of a first offense, the first time that they're sentenced, their sentence is based on that absence of prior criminal history. That's true in the federal system. And also most state systems take account of that. Second time 
that you're convicted and sentenced, your sentence is enhanced by virtue of the fact that you have prior criminal history. And so playing that out for Donald Trump, although there's not a three strikes provision that would apply, you could very easily end up with looking at graduated, accelerated sentences so that if there was a final conviction, there's the possibility of a hefty sentence at the end. Our last question comes from Tracy Beadle, 1969, and Tracy asks, if the Georgia case gets moved to federal court and Trump is convicted, is he eligible for a presidential pardon or still subject to the Georgia state pardon laws? So, Barb, this sort of completes our troika of um, questions <laughs> along the same vein today. What do you think? Yeah, this is such a great question. And I wondered about this, too, but I, I did look into it. And the answer, Tracy, is no, he would not be eligible for a presidential pardon because the language in the Constitution says um, that the president may pardon someone for an offense against the United States. So that's a violation of federal law, a federal statute. If uh, Trump is convicted in the Rico, Georgia RICO case in federal court, it is still a violation of the laws of the state of Georgia. And so he would not be eligible for a presidential pardon there. So great question. And um, it, that, that case remains pardon proof. Well, please continue to send us your questions. You can see that we had a great theme going here today, and maybe that's something that we'll continue to do. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Weinbanks, and me, Joyce Vance. Remember that you can send us your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sisters in law. Please support our sponsors for this week. Hello, Fresh. Honey Love, Real Paper, and One Skin. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them. They really help us make this show happen. And go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, totes, and other goodies. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review to help others find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sisters-in-law. That there be fair consideration given to all future... Wow, what's what's going on at your house, Jill? Probably the mailman must be here <laughs> and Brisby is greeting him. Delivering dog treats. <laughs> Brisby is serious the mailman about leaves, whoever we can that go back. is. Come here, Brisby, honey. Come here. Briz, come here. Come here. Good boy. Brisby. Come here. Come here and be a good boy. Be a good boy. Yes. Okay. Now could you sit down and just behave? <laughs>